Welcome to the Rising Sea Voices podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Here you will discover and learn from the new generation of coastal, estuarine, and ocean scientists and engineers. My name is Felicia Almeta-Schultz, and I am the Rising Sea Voices host. Today, we will talk marine conservation and tribal engagement in Alaska. But before starting the episode, I would like to offer a land acknowledgement. I live and work in Vancouver, Washington. This land has been cared for and called home by the Chinook Indian Nation, the Cowlitz Indian tribe, and the Chinookan, Tainapan, and Klikitat peoples from time immemorial. In the 1800s, the Tainapan Indians were relocated to the Cowlitz Reservation, where the descendants still live today, while many of the present-day descendants of the Klikitat people are part of the Yakama Nation. The land where I live holds great historical, spiritual, and personal significance for its original stewards. However, there is still no federal acknowledgement of the Chinook as an Indian tribe, and the Kalitz Indian tribe had to wait until 2000 to be officially recognized by the federal government. I recognize and continually support and advocate for the sovereignty of the native nations in this territory and beyond. Despite centuries of colonial theft and violence, this is still indigenous land. It will always be indigenous land. Indigenous people are not relics of the past, and their talents and knowledge are worth celebrating. I make this acknowledgement to remind us that no diversity, equity, inclusion, or justice work can be done without including the voices and wisdom of indigenous people and black Americans, those ancestors were brought to this land as slaves and were instrumental in creating what we now call the United States of America. I encourage you to learn more about the lands you inhabit, the history of those lands, and how to actively be part of a better future going forward together. Today, my guest is Anna Marie Garcia. Anna Marie is an Alaska Sea Grant Fellow working for the Northern Latitudes Partnership at the Alaska Conservation Foundation since August 2021. She works on improving collaborative efforts among nonprofit, state, and federal agencies and tribal organizations to address climate change in Alaska. Anna Marie holds a master's in marine policy from the University of Delaware while she worked on improving engagement with Native American tribes in the development of offshore wind in the Mid-Atlantic region. She also has a Bachelor of Arts in Environmental Studies and Sustainability and Anthropology from the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. Welcome, Hannah Marie. Uh, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? Doing quite well. Really happy to be here and just to chat um, more about conservation in Alaska. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about that too. And um, before we go more into the weeds about your work at the Northern Latitudes Partnership and, you know, give us more information about that, um, could you first tell us a little more about, you know, your your path, the path that led you there? And I know also you worked on some really cool projects uh, for your bachelor degree and your master degree. Yeah, I would be happy to. It's definitely a long and winding story, so I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> but that's one of my favorite parts about how I got here is um, I kind of now have come to this point in my life where as much as I have bounced around and traveled, I think it's been all leading up to this point. But um, essentially, I was born in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I lived in Wyoming until I was about four years old. And my family being um, quite large, my mother has five siblings, my father has four. And so we have a lot of cousins, um, aunts and uncles, and they're all spread out from South Dakota down to Arizona. 
But when I was four, my parents decided to move us to Charleston, South Carolina, which I like to think is now kind of the reason why I fell in love with the coast and the ocean. Um, I was always a beach baby growing up um, <laughs> when I was playing uh, with my siblings there and friends. And so I, I basically grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, and I moved out when I was 16 to attend boarding school at the Lawrenceville School in New Jersey. And that move was kind of by choice. I've always been very fiercely independent. Um, so I flew the coop <laughs> early, uh, despite my mother being a little neglect to let me leave um, that young. But uh, I was so grateful to have that opportunity to, to attend Lawrenceville. It really opened up many doors for me in my education and career, but also was the solidifying moment for me to really realize that my passion is environmental studies and sustainability. Um, you know, we were from the West, as I mentioned, we moved from Colorado and Wyoming areas. And so I love the mountains. My father took me hiking a lot. We camped when I was younger and then all the beach trips too. Like I just had this love for the outdoors. Um, and so I knew I wanted to do something in that realm, something to let me travel and be outside, uh, was the dream when I was pretty young. And there was a, um, Peru ecology trip that I took, uh, I think it was my um, second year of high school or third year of high school, um, where that was the, one of the appeals of Lawrenceville schools that had a travel program even in high school. And that Peru ecology trip was a trip to the Amazon to study kind of bats and water quality of streams and kind of any project that we could come up with um, related to plant ecology. And so I was fortunate enough to attend that trip and it kind of just made me fall in love with field work and being outside, falling asleep to um, crickets and frogs in the Amazon and waking up to howling monkeys. Like that was where I wanted my life to continue to exist. Um, and so I decided to pursue that in college and um, I came across this tiny liberal arts school when I was doing my college applications called University of the South Swanee. And um, it's in the middle of kind of nowhere, Tennessee. It's in between Chattanooga and Nashville. So it's about 45 minutes to an hour from any major city. It's known for its forestry. So we're quite small campus size, and then we're just surrounded by woods and forest. And so that was where I wanted to go and continue my work. Um, but while I was there, I kind of realized I was still finding my way and my path to the ocean and looking at marine systems. There was a professor there, his name's Dr. Fielding, and I can dive into this later, but essentially I was able and fortunate enough to be brought onto a research project my freshman year in college there that looked at the whaling culture in the Caribbean, um, which is you know kind of a controversial topic, but mm -hmm. we were looking at it from a perspective of um, pollution and mercury contamination that is found in whale tissue and the human health impacts that that could pose if there are high amounts of mercury in the whale tissue. And so that was the kind of beginning of social science blending with field work. So not only was I just kind of studying marine mammals, but I was looking at kind of the human interplay of that, how humans and marine mammals are interacting, that, that kind of cultural side of that project. And so... Um, 
as I wrapped up my college career and I, you know, as we all figure out in college, you, you have to have it all figured out really fast. You have to know where to go. And I felt all this pressure to figure out where I was going with my mm -hmm. life after that. And I came back to the ocean again and the coastal systems and realized I spent four years in landlocked Tennessee and still managed to make my marine my thesis and research be on marine ecosystems and coastal communities. And um, I essentially found my path then taking me to Delaware, <laughs> yet another state and another move um, to where I studied marine policy and shifted towards that social science side of my work and worked on offshore wind power and how to better engage coastal communities in work to help combat climate change um, in the, the method of increasing our renewable energy use on the coast of the mid-atlantic region through offshore wind power and that stint lasted for about two years and then um my family and friends at this point kind of knew I was always going to be traveling. And, you know, as I mentioned early on, I was always looking for a job or a career that would let me travel and be in the environment. And and I came across uh, Alaska Sea Grant Fellowship um, that led me to this beautiful state that I am now very happy to call home. And I'm involved in such really um, fulfilling and enlightening and complex work that I'm just so happy to be here, but has definitely been a journey. Um, a lot of states have been visited, um, but in a way, I think that's kind of a benefit to where I'm at now because I've been able to see all the challenges that every unique environment faces and try to take those lessons and apply them to my current work. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think what is really interesting also in your path is the fact that you've been able to, you know, study or or be exposed to what um, artisanal whaling is and so basically culture but also now with new technologies and offshore sometimes this clash that you have between you know tradition and users traditional users and after comes you know development of new technologies or you know how do we share the marine space so i think that's interesting too and Oh, and also I wanted to add, because I was doing a little of research of, you know, uh, Professor Dr. Russell Fielding, I guess for audience, if they're interested in knowing more about this work, about um, artisanal whaling and, you know, study about the, the content in Mercury and all that, I think there is this book called The Wake of the Whale, and I'm going to check that out. <laughs> so I just wanted to put that out there. But, um, yeah, so also can you... Tell us a little more about yeah, how you've been able to to be able to develop communication between those two worlds when it's more like, you know, cultural, culture, tradition, and after, um, you know, having these issues also with um, colonialism, new technologies, and, and sharing space. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to unpack it because it is definitely a realm and, and, and um, <laughs> space that I am still learning. Um, but yeah, my experience with all of this work and, and especially starting with studying whaling in the Caribbean um, for four years with Dr. Russell Fielding is that um, you can only move at the, at the speed of trust. And often it's about, you know, taking time to really just, for a lack of a better phrase, put your Put yourself in that person's shoes try to see 
the environment and these spaces that we're all passionate about, that we all want to use and, and exist in and change and alter. So um, try to see it from their point of view and, and understand what they're valuing in that space. Um, and when it came to whaling, a lot of the times that with that research project, when we were able to finally establish that there were high levels of mercury contamination and it did become more of a social science and cultural question of, okay, how do we approach this from an appreciation of this culture and this value of, of whaling and respect it in that manner, but also communicate, you know, the human health impacts, um, the potential impacts on ecosystems in a way that kind of is mutually beneficial and also doesn't erode relationships. Um, as we know with whaling, it's a highly controversial subject. And so often if you come at it combative, <laughs> the results are never going to be um, as productive uh, as they could be. And so for us, it was really about understanding the level of use um, kind of the who on the island was actually consuming this whale meat, um, how much is it actually impacting populations, is it not? And so we did a long series of interviews um, across the island, and those interviews sometimes weren't on whaling. Sometimes it was just talking to people about their favorite dish or what did their mother cook them when they were growing up, like understanding how this one source of food fit into the broader scope of of their culture and how important was that? Um, what type of impact would it have if we recommended in our paper or in our research that consumption should decrease or stop altogether? And so it's really about approaching these um, topics with a level of patience. And that is really hard in kind of this Western scientific policy realm that we sometimes all exist in because it is such a fast paced turnovers fast with officials, elected officials, or policy is slow. And you never really do get the results from the social advocacy side sometimes that you really want to see. And so it's about having a lot of grace with these conversations and recognizing each other's frustrations or miscommunications and how do we better learn from each other and about each other. And that was kind of the lessons I took from the Caribbean when I moved into the offshore wind space as well. And that's a whole other kind of complex <laughs> system, too, because you speak about tribes in the mid-Atlantic region. And often in my work, sometimes I do kind of get this uh, look of like, oh, I kind of forget that they're there because um, the erasure mm -hmm. culture for Native Americans are so strong in the mid-Atlantic or the assumption that they have all been shifted west is even stronger and it's just untrue and so kind of looking to meet people at that level of like frustration and emotion and also recognizing that we do have a lot to still learn from the other side. I had a lot of humbling moments in that research of interviewing and my own kind of research of looking at the history there that I really didn't know much about those tribes. And so it just takes a lot of time and humility to really recognize that a big part of these processes when it comes to engaging meaningfully with coastal communities, whether that's tribal or another country, or even just regular coastal users and tourists that come into coastal communities and trying to all use the same space. We have a lot of deep history in these spaces and 
trying to unpack all of that and understand those different perspectives is really the bulk of the work. And I even feel like I sometimes don't have time and my work and life is dedicated to this work, but I am constantly learning. And I think that's something that I have to remind myself of and bring that even into the conversation and let people that I'm working with know, like, I am a student, I'm here to learn. And part of this is mainly just needing to listen to others um, about how they see a space and how we can all find those similarities like oh i i value the sunrise in the morning as well and we all come to the beach or these coastal spaces to find that sense of serenity or comfort or maybe we come for sustenance reasons for fishing and a source of food and so how do we then balance all of those perspectives in a way that is uh, mutually beneficial and that is that is the key question no right and and i guess then those experiences have been really beneficial to you in the position you have right now because um and i think the work you're doing now is definitely involving even more uh, stakeholders and tribes as well um and yeah can you tell us a little about um you know the northern attitudes partnership and you know who are they <laughs> what do they do and also um who are the people you're working with yeah Yeah, and um, as you mentioned earlier in kind of the introduction too, I I did start this position in August uh, 2021, so going on about eight months of of this position. So I'm I'm still learning, but the Northern Latitudes Partnership is a really unique approach to landscape conservation, and that's including coastal and terrestrial systems, which has kind of, I think, been where I felt torn back in my earlier kind of path here is, is going from, do I want to be mountains and terrestrial research or do I want to be marine biology and coastal research? And that's what I love about this position that I've come to understand is that the landscape level needs to include all of those systems. There is no arbitrary boundary between river studies and ocean studies or forestry and um, algae bloom studies. Like they're all tied in together. And that was kind of the realization that helped lead to the formation of um, what we called the Landscape Conservation Cooperative, um, which was, or the LCCs, which was a program that was put in place in the Obama administration. That was the kind of federal government's first attempt at a national level conservation effort that kind of looked beyond these boundaries that we place on um, state landscapes or how do we tackle these large complex climate change issues from a landscape level approach, from that holistic perspective that all of these systems are tied together and we need partnerships to kind of help um, tackle all of those issues that we are facing. Um, But unfortunately, LCCs uh, lost funding um, and kind of disbanded and dispersed. But there were three in Alaska that decided, no, um, the work that we are doing is very important and we want to continue. And those three were the um, kind of Aleutian Bering Sea Initiative or ABSI, and then the Western Alaskan Partnership and the Northwest Boreal Partnership, which also includes part of Canada. And essentially those three entities um, came together to form 
under a new name. They were formerly LCCs, but under a new name, they reformed when funding shifted to the Northern Latitudes Partnerships. And, and so that is how kind of the history of, of the NLPs, but we are still essentially three partnerships across the state of Alaska and into Canada working to bring together federal and state agencies along with Alaska Native corporations, tribes, coastal communities, rural communities, academics. It's, it's a large mixing pot of partners all trying to have conversations and better coordinate and recognize that, oh, hey, the Fish and Wildlife Service is doing um, work on seabird die-off. And we have a citizen science um, kind of a local community effort that's happening over here on St. Paul Island. Can we collaborate? Um, And that's kind of the effort, a little bit of the NLP is to really bridge all these divides and come together under one single topic, which is land, and talk about how can we become better stewards of the land. Um, And that's a nice eloquent way to actually put that we do a lot of cat herding. We do a lot of emailing, trying to corral people to get in the same space, talk um, in a neutral fashion. Um, And so it's it's a really a lot of fun collaborative work, but it's it's slow and it's not always... um, smooth sailing either. Um, But it's really exciting because we get to see these partnerships and kind of heal relationships between sometimes some federal agencies and Alaska Native corporations and tribes and really kind of create some really groundbreaking projects and uh, momentum behind conservation work here in Alaska and Canada. And um, can you give us some examples of projects? I know you've been working on one that is called... um skipper science yes yes that was um one of the many projects um that we have kind of juggling at once but skipper science was the first kind of project that i was brought in on and it's a really unique outgrowth of um what was called the citizens or sorry uh the indigenous sentinels network or isn and this was a kind of tribally led and created Um, data collection effort that was happening from the Aleut community of St. Paul Island, which is off the coast of Alaska in the Bering Sea. And they were doing a lot of efforts to collect ecological and biological data on the changes they were seeing in their environment and on their island. And they were using, you know, basic pen and paper and web-based data collection. And eventually it evolved to adapt to smartphone app technologies or tablets because many of the challenges that we face here in Alaska that are unique to the lower 48 challenges when it comes to climate change is like we are vast remote areas and so signal is always a challenge wi-fi is not always there Um, also researchers can't always get to some of the places that we need data on and so we're just a very low capacity in terms of researchers and efforts sometimes and population as well as really remote areas and so With ISN, the unique ability for that is that it's flexible. It doesn't require internet or signal. um, And it's a platform that essentially lets um, users in remote and rural areas collect information on changes they're seeing to their environment, whether that's just simply logging daily water temperature or air temperature or noting the presence of um, shifting populations of sea otters or fish or caribou, um, things like that. And so the ISN network really 
kind of was the platform that Aleut Community of St. Paul Island was already ahead of the game on. And we had partners. Again, NLP is always like we have our, our tabs on all these other partnerships and what are other people doing still related to conservation. And so our Salmon State partners, so Salmon State is a different organization that helps with um, advocacy and the protection of um, salmon fisheries. And so Salmon State came to the NLP and asked, you know, is there a way that we could get fishermen to collect data and provide information that they're seeing to the changing fisheries and climate out on the water? Um, and we partnered essentially and brought all these players together and Aleut Community of St. Paul, Salmon State, NLP, and ABSI all came together to start to form Skipper Science, which is the outgrowth of the ISN network and its own little kind of app that allows fishermen, specifically fisheries-specific users, to document um, changes they're seeing to fish populations um, and water conditions out on the water. And so that launched officially last year in 2021 summer season, where we were recruiting fishermen to log information they're seeing on the app. Um, and we got over 100 fishermen signed up that were spread out all the way from St. Paul and the Bering Sea down to Southeast Alaska and Sitka um, to really help get information and data that's lacking in these areas. Um, just to help fill in these data gaps that we were hearing from scientists that they need more information about the shifting changes um, of the climate across Alaska. And so Skipper Science app really helped fill some of that. And we are now moving into kind of the 2022 season. And we're taking a lot of that feedback from a workshop we hosted about, you know, lessons learned, um, app improvements that need to be made because this is still an evolving technology. And then we're also now starting to bridge and build more relationships between fishermen and scientists and communicating with the two of them sometimes in the same room about what data do scientists need and what data are fishermen willing to collect and this on the ground collaborative work to, okay, where are those overlaps? Um, scientists are saying they would love more sea otter information in the Southeast. So then now we can kind of match, make and pair that effort with some of this app technology and actually provide incentives and funds for some fishermen to um, collect that data. You know, we have scientists sometimes out on these waters getting paid to research for um, a specific field season, but fishermen are out on that water day in and day out. And so they can be doing that same work and getting um, a source of revenue from it. And so this program has been a really fun um, mutually beneficial partnership that's still growing. And that's kind of been the project in a nutshell. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> I can go into more details about how the app works and um, what kind of observations we're getting. Um, but for the sake of time, I'll, I'll keep it there. Um, <laughs> but that's Skipper Science. Yeah, and I will just do a little um, follow-up question relating to the um, data collected. Um so are these data like can be used by anyone who has data ownership and also are they going to be available to the public or or not i'm just curious about you know because often we we have all this data but after often it's like how the product the deliverables are going to be beneficial for to everyone exactly and that is also something too that 
We are aware of, I mean, I think that this is a really fun tribal public private partnership. There's a lot of existing data privacy and data sovereignty kind of respect built into this program already. Um, it is not at the moment available to the public. And I don't think we will ever really um, publicize the, the raw data that comes through. I mean, you have, um, you know, some tribal fishing grounds that might want to be protected or, or knowledge um, to be protected as well as um, fishermen. Sometimes, you know, you never want to really uh, showcase your favorite fishing hole as well. And so um, that essentially is a big priority of Skipper Science and the ISN network too, is to respect um, data privacy and sovereignty. But what we can do and what is the, the next major push is what we're having conversation with NOAA as well is to have, okay, we have this data, we have conversations going about data needs that are um, happening in Southeast um, or scientists are talking to us that they want more seabird die-off information or um, walrus haul out locations. And so what is the then data portal in a sense that this information can feed into once it's, you know, a little scrubbed to protect privacy. And we do have efforts now to kind of publicize, you know, season reports. We had a 2021 skipper science season report that came out at the end of last pilot season that did summarize, you know, that we had X number of observations on, marine mammals. Um, we had a, a few on sea turtles that were seen in Alaska, which was kind of unique to see. We had a, a, a fisherman in Southeast report a sea turtle in the seine net. And um, there was also a lot of horseflies being reported, which was interesting. I think a lot of Southeast fishermen were saying that they hadn't seen this many horseflies. So it's just the data itself is quite broad. Um, <laughs> and we just wanted to cast a wide net to really just see last year in the 21, 20, 2021 pilot season, what is possible? What are fishermen willing to submit in? Um, what kind of observations would be easy to collect while out on the water, while fishing? And this is like a two to five minutes thing that they can also do on top of their normal job. And so this next season, we are really going to try to pair and get species specific and region specific data that comes in through this software so that it can better feed into platforms and, and other data portals that NOAA is already using. Um, but for example, we also hope, you know, that um, there's a environmental um, or ecosystem status reports that come out in the fall. And we're hoping that this information from the 2022 season can directly feed into that to help inform some fisheries information. Um, and so in all in all, I think the other aspect of kind of data protection, privacy, what's available to the public and the future of where this data goes is that with this being kind of a tribal private public partnership that kind of originated from a grass up grassroots and is building off of existing relationships between NLP, Ali Community St. Paul and the partnerships are continuing to grow. And we had a number of commercial fishing um, industry partners support and endorse this program. And so there's a level of unique kind of respect and trust that I see happening in this dialogue and these partnerships that I don't really see in other areas um, when it comes to, you know, identifying how do we go overcome this tension sometimes between coastal communities and take, for example, like the offshore wind realm. Um, sometimes this, that program, those technologies are so new 
that it doesn't have those relationships quite yet. Like those offshore wind companies need to take the time to figure out who are the local partnerships and how can we um, take time to have those conversations, build those relationships so that there is trust involved when it comes to asking, okay, where is my data going to go? So I appreciate you asking that question too, because it's a really important question and it's something that I see is really handled in a really unique an amazing way with the Skipper Science partnerships that I haven't really seen in any other efforts um, that I've at least worked in so far. And and because you know it seems like the Skipper Science project has been going so well, are there is there any other you know community interested in doing something similar? Have you been reaching out to other tribes, or have you been contacted by some tribes to maybe do something? Stimeter? Yeah, I think we are definitely getting a lot of kind of interest. And that's like we just actually had, you know, a team meeting the other day of talking about, okay, where are our boots on the ground outreach efforts going to go next? And, uh, and that does include talking to kind of tribes in the Prince William Sound area and also, um, you know, looking at other possible fishing industries or kind of coastal community um, work that's happening. So mariculture work and kelp farming, that's going to be starting to, to increase here in Alaska. We're looking at that as also being a potential kind of way to um, reach out and have them also use the app um, just as another unique source on the water. And then in general, the ISN or Indigenous Sentinels Network is a suite of apps. And that's what kind of makes it really unique is that it's very flexible and can be tailored to different community needs. Um, We also have like another app within this ISN network beyond Skipper Science. That's the Anadronous Waters Catalog um, that is also targeting kind of another specific uh, community or system of needs that came um, from conversations we were hearing about the need to identify more data gaps or pro- how do we protect our streams that are are vital for, um, you know, ensuring future salmon runs and spawning grounds? How do we better protect those streams here in Alaska? And digging into that and recognizing that um, stream protection is identified through state kind of wa- uh, natural waters catalogs, but that um, a good portion of the streams here in Alaska aren't actually, you know, surveyed or part of that catalog. So how do we fill that data gap? Oh, we can reach out to communities who are in these areas, hunters, trappers, um, those that are just walking the land in this area to take a moment and use the Anadrus Waters Catalog app to survey that stream so that there is more information out there when it comes to identifying what areas to protect um, for stream use in Alaska. And so it's really a fun, as you point out, like a lot of communities can come to this um, partnership with needs or interests. And and in general, a lot of these communities can already go ahead and use the ISN network suite of apps and Skipper Science to kind of tailor um, their needs and get more information and kind of have the data in their hands when it comes to trying to, 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 kind of, I guess, help inform the decisions that are happening about their lands, waters, and fisheries. Yeah, no, that's definitely, like, really um, uh, cool to see such a project because when I think of Alaska, uh, yeah, it's it's really big. <laughs> it's like, how do you access everything? And the fact that you have this, you know, kind of trying to involve everyone 
to collect data, I think is also great. And and then bring me also to my question. So that I, I would say would be one of the challenge because you have, you know, limited capacity for such a really big territory. Um, can you tell me other, that could be some of the challenges you encountered either, you know, in your former research or in your current position um, related to, you know, involvement. You mentioned the trust. You mentioned also like how to sometimes build connection, but any other um, challenges or it could be on the other end something unexpected or exciting about you know the work you've been doing yeah um, the first thing that kind of came to mind when thinking about you know challenges to this kind of work and and it does a little bit relate to trust and relationships and I may sound like a broken record but it does all really boil down <laughs> to those human mm-hmm. relationships I mean we are imperfect people in an imperfect system. I mean, no matter which system you're operating in, there's going to be imperfections. And I think right now, as we see in the world today, the (laughs) current systems we've been using are not working. And so being able to kind of humble yourself, admit that these systems aren't working and and dig in deep with each other and recognize that it's going to be dirty work. It's going to go slow. There's going to be moments of tension and challenge and um, moments where you're uncomfortable because your worldview is being challenged or you're recognizing that, you know, you were told that this one way is the way to go, but then you're hearing from another community that, no, this is not the correct way to to care for the land and steward for the land and that, um, or I don't agree with the, the renewable energy coming through. You know, it's it's hard to take those comments. And so that's been a big challenge, at least when I think to my work in offshore wind and the mid-Atlantic sometimes is that there is this lack of relationship. And I think, you know, my research there, a bulk of my recommendations that I made after um, a series of interviews with tribes, the Bureau of Ocean and Energy Management, which is responsible for the permitting and, and development of offshore wind, as well as offshore wind companies, state government, and um, a few academics, like the most bottom line point that I got from those surveys and conversations and recommendations from that research is really just to to have more capacity within BOEM and within coastal communities to, to work meaningfully and engage with tribes um, in a process that is not just in consultation. Um, the, the law of consultation, like the law that requires consultation of tribes, but also to speak about, you know, other things beyond offshore wind, actually have them involved in the process sooner prior to permits actually being issued or prior to lease sales being announced. Um, I think there's a big part of this dialogue and this work that it's really challenging to kind of know when to bring people into the conversation or even who. Um, In my current line of work, being so new to Alaska, I think that's kind of a challenge is really to recognize that there are so many voices, as you say, that need to be involved in these conversations. Um, but yet we're all still trying to learn how to listen to each other and even know who, who's doing this kind of work that needs to be invited to the table. So I think it's been ex- exciting to kind of learn that process as well. Um, it's a new, fun, dynamic way of thinking about this work and 
I think the more that we admit, you know, that we're all trying, that we're still imperfect, we're learning new systems and we're unlearning ways of thinking, that being able to talk about that in a in a space that's not so formal and not just about the conflict or project or need at hand, but actually just taking time to relate to one another and build that relationship um, over time and consistently is really kind of what I've learned to be most like informing of my efforts too. Um, because then by meeting one person and taking time to talk to them about things beyond just a project or what other things are they involved in, you get to learn about another network or um, nonprofit that's also doing this work and that they could also help with. And so I think there's this, this is really cool challenge to like having so many people be involved in a project, but also a unique opportunity to realize that it is an all hands on deck situation. And we need to take the time to learn everyone's strengths and weaknesses and what they can bring to the table and what information and knowledge that they hold that we don't know about that could be really informing to, to everyone's line of work and effort that we're trying to do when it comes to conservation. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and often there is not enough time and money uh, given to, to projects related to all the, all the work that has been done, you know, outreach and engagement work, which is actually the most important piece of it. <laughs> so I think there is definitely more uh, efforts that has to be done this way. I totally agree. And also the fact to realize that we, it's really important to know each other too and to see the human in all of us instead of just looking at the hats we're wearing. Um, so, no, I, I completely agree. And, and I would like to quote um, someone at Oregon State University and I've been taking some workshops with her. I love her quote is, is there is a lot of poop out there and you're going to step into it. So, for sure, this work sometimes, you know, is kind of like, scary uncomfortable but uh we have to do it and we're going to make mistakes and we need to acknowledge them and we need to learn from them but yeah it's definitely not easy work but it's needed work i would like to ask you now like so you've been doing you know your bachelor your master novice experience as a as a sea grant fellow and i was wondering where do you see yourself next i mean would you like to continue your studies? Would you like to maybe work for a specific organization or agency? Um, or you don't know yet, which is totally okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, can it be all of the above? No. <laughs> I think it's a little bit of a combination of... Um, there are some uncertainties, so I, I'm not quite sure, but I do know at least that I, I physically will be here in Alaska. Um, I think looking back and reflecting on my personal and professional journey and you know the values I held and where I feel at peace, at home, and most inspired to do this work, it's always been this constant battle between mountains and sea. Do I go like back to my roots and, and stay in the Rockies and stand before mountains wherever I live and be humbled that you know, this, this environment and this land is bigger than myself and I'm going to do everything I can to protect it? Or do I stay by the coast where the ocean does the same thing? If you're out on a research vessel, 
and you're standing at the bow of a boat in a storm with major waves, like that's also a moment of humility. Those kind of points in my life, I recognize like, okay, I need to be in a place that reminds me that there's something greater than myself as well as like connection to land that can keep me kind of stable in all the turmoil that we sometimes do face. Because I will admit in this line of work and climate change and conservation work, it is kind of doom and gloom a lot of the times. And I've found that I needed to have a space and access to that field research now that I've, you know, shifted a little bit more to social science and I've gotten comfortable wearing this social scientist hat and working with communities and people. And, um, but I still need kind of that field work or just ability to go on a hike and be reminded that, um, this is the reason that I do this work. And so once I crossed the border in Alaska, I kind of knew I found this space. Um, it's not for everyone. You, you hear it a lot. You know, Alaska is you either love it or you realize, you know, she's too tough for you. <laughs> but um, it's a beautiful state. So I know physically I will be here um, working in this space of conservation um, and uplifting and finding ways to uplift Alaska Native and Indigenous voices in this work. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I would have said a couple months ago that I wanted to work for a federal agency of some capacity, whether that be NOAA, Fish and Wildlife Service, or, um, any other kind of agency that works in this realm, um, Bureau of Indian Affairs. But I think I've realized that with the benefit of this private, public, and tribal partnership realm that I've stepped into with the Northern Latitudes Partnership, that there's a lot more that can happen in this space. And so I think I wanna try to continue to either work for NLP or um, maybe one of the, the entities that we partner with, whether that's um, you know the Aleut community of St. Paul Island or any other conservation organization here in Alaska, um, to put it broadly. Um, but it definitely is a little bit of a of an open door. And but, you know, if I've learned anything in all of my many jobs and hats that I wear, it's, you know, eventually I'll land in the right place. Yeah, I think so, too. And I think, you know, you you will see in which space you f you feel like it's the most, you know, rewarding and maybe what you see you feel like you're making a difference and that where you enjoy working and the fact that you know you're going to be in Alaska. I think it's a, you know, it's half of it. You know what you want to be. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. so that helps a lot in after, you know, making future decisions for sure. So, so that's great. I think too, I, um, I think that's been a big part of it. I feel like I was getting... I bounced around so much just so I could finally make it up here. But, you know, I think when it comes to, you know, young researchers, and young career, you do kind of move where the grant money is or where the next education opportunity is. And so I think if anything, if I move anywhere, if I, if I make any decisions based on what's next, it's going to be where can I learn the most or what, how can I contribute the skills that I have, but also still learn. And I think that's something that, you know, if we're, thinking about early career researchers or um, people in this kind of line of work, it's always about how can we learn more to better address the challenges that we are trying to solve or uh, tackle and the issues that we are trying to solve. And so um, I'm glad I've definitely found the location. <laughs> like you said, that's half of the battle. 
Um, but I'm also very grateful that even if I don't know what's next, that I know that there's a lot of a lot of learning to come, and that's exciting. Yeah, no, for sure. And and so <laughs> I'm going now to ask you a question that is, you know, completely unrelated. Um, because I was thinking back at your work in the Caribbean, and I'm curious did you did you try whale meat? Out of curiosity. Mm. <laughs> I did. Um, I am not a fan of the blubber. <laughs> I will say that um, I had to do, you know, I had to be, I was trying to be respectful, but I will admit I had to like try to do the sly, like turn and spit it out. It was just very oily and a texture thing for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say I do like um, the dried meat. It's kind of very similar to a jerky. And if you pair it with breadfruit, um, which is a very starchy fruit down in the Caribbean, um, it's really good. Uh, <laughs> so I did try it. Um, and I would say, you know, it, it's it's very similar to jerky. Um, other than kind of more of a, almost like a fish oil or fishy mm -hmm. taste, that's really the only difference. But um, yes, I have tried whale meat. Okay, no, and... Because I know um, some of my friends uh, also who traveled, work for, um, you know, for some tribes or traveled, they, they also, um, you know, tried. So I was curious. And it was a pilot whale, right? Yes, pilot whale, which I guess, oh, yes, that is also an important um, distinction for this work, too. It's whaling in the Caribbean is very small scale. You know, it's, it's not large industrial ships <laughs> that we sometimes see using heavy mechanics to, to take down large humpback or blue whales or sperm whales. It's, um, it's pilot whales, which is kind of more the size of a porpoise. And I think that's also um, another reason too, is it's not regulated by the International Whaling Commission because of its size. A lot of the smaller marine animals um, are not currently regulated by the International Whaling Commission. Um, but yes, it's pilot whale or blackfish as is the local term for it. Hmm. Okay. And... Well, since you've been in Alaska, did you try or so any food that you never tried before? <laughs> yes, um, I've actually tried caribou, um, which is very kind of, we um, cooked it like a steak and it does have more of a gamey taste. Um, and I've gotten into hunting actually, finally, while I've been here in Alaska. So that's also been really um, rewarding to kind of go out and, you know, catch and do all the processing myself. Um, my uncle actually also makes stream catchers and insisted I sent him um, a copy of the snow hair that I caught, or not a copy, sorry, the fur of the snow hair mm -hmm. that I caught um, once. And so we also had rabbit stew um, for Super Bowl weekend. So I learned how <laughs> to cook that. And so rabbit, caribou, um, I think I've had moose. I can't remember if that was caribou or moose. But yes, there's been a lot of really fun moments to just kind of explore and new foods and tastes up here in Alaska. And I'm really looking forward to berry picking season next fall. Um, next fall, I'm, I kind of missed it towards the tail end of the end of summer and fall season last year. <laughs> yeah, I love when I go hiking. I love huckleberry um, picking. Um, yeah. And we're coming into fishing, salmon fishing season too. And, and so I'm really looking forward to getting some really fresh salmon. Nice. That sounds, that sounds great. Yeah. I've never been to Alaska, so uh, I'll let you know if one day I, I travel there. I'd love to. <laughs> and um, do you have any um, personal message that you will, you know, 
share with our listeners or, you know, personal message to someone or recommend some website to check out, um, a shout out to, you know, a local organization or, you know, a native organization. Yeah, no, all of the things. <laughs> but um, I definitely, you know, I do want to take this space. It, it would be fun to to have her re-listen to this. But my mother and my father, you know, they they took a lot of sacrifices with me leaving early. You know, I, I haven't been as home as much as I should have. And I've got two nephews as well um, with my brother and his sister-in-law. And so I do wish that I could be around more, but I'm so grateful to them to always, you know, just accept the pictures that I send. And they're all very excited to come to Alaska more. So I just wanted to give them a shout out as well um, to say thank you for always <laughs> embracing my wanderlust and traveling. Um, but I think for for the listeners too, um, if you're involved in any sort of, you know, conservation or environmental work, if the work is needed, you'll never be a short on a job. Um, there's some amazing organizations and programs out there. And um, I guess a thank you to, to all the other young researchers too. There's a lot of challenges that we're all facing and trying to grapple with. And, you know, I'm, we're, we're few and far in between sometimes it feels like, but I know that there's a lot of, a lot of really ex- brilliant minds out there working right now on this, on these efforts. And so I just want to um, send some encouraging words to, to, to keep, keep, your, keep, keeping your hands dirty and um, take time to, to learn from your community that you're working in. I think that's my biggest part too, is I've, that's even a reminder to myself is to take time to, to be in this space. I've only been here eight months. And so I know I have a lot of work ahead of me beyond my actual work to just be present, le- learn about my community in the space that I'm in and apply those lessons and perspectives um, to my work and bring my whole self into it as well as, you know, everyone else that I come across in these communities as well. So um, I would also, um, you know, shout out to check out the Northern Latitudes website and um, the partnerships if you guys want to learn more. It's a really cool collaboration of three separate partnerships that do work all across the state of Alaska and into Canada, um, all trying to find better ways to become better stewards of our lands and waters. Um, So definitely go check out the Northern Latitudes partnership as well. Yeah, for sure. And I will um, also on the Rising Sea Voices website, which is part of the American Shoreline Podcast Network website, <laughs> um, we will have information, all the links to the websites, you know, we talked about and mentioned and the book I mentioned as well. Uh, and people can have more information about you as well and can contact you if they have any questions. And and yeah, um, Hannah Mary, it was a pleasure to talk with you today and to learn more about your work and in your path and yeah you you made us travel all around the u.s and even internationally because you went to peru so thank you for sharing your experiences and the great um you know um, lessons and suggestions and how to work better with different groups uh and how to work better with each other because we all have to work together to find solutions to all these environmental issues that we're facing so thank you for your time. Yes. Well, thank you for this space um, and the time here too. It's been wonderful to connect and 
um, attempt to summarize all all of the, the perspectives that is this this work in my life. So thank you for the space too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rising Sea Voices podcast. And thank you to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today for hosting this show. If you would like to learn more about the Rising Sea Voices podcast and other podcasts on ESPN, go to coastalnewstoday.com. There, you can find more information on the guests that appear on my show. And be sure to subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you get your pod. Also, you are someone you know could be my next guest. Email me at felicia at coastalnewstoday.com or DM me on Twitter at Fometa Schultz to send me your ideas. Thank you for listening and take care.